Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with uh, Megan Kenyon, and uh, I'm Paul Axton. Uh, I often forget to say who I am. And Megan is an artist in residence in St. Louis, Missouri. And pre- presently, she's come to my home and come to Moberly because she's doing some, some work here, but is also then uh, one who has combined the, her artistic abilities and talents uh, with a, a particular theological understanding that she's, she's trying to work out theologically. Uh, her, her role, uh, her you know, form of life, we might call it, as an artist, and the theology that goes with that. So she's thought more uh, deeper and longer about this than anybody else that I know. <laughs> and so, uh, Megan, if and by and and incidentally, Megan was my student some how many years ago? Mm, like two years two, ago. Two years ago. So. T- tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, in both art and theology at the moment. Um, a lot of the work currently doing with art and theology is finding what it means to be an artist and a Christian kind of simultaneously. How does my faith impact my art? Um, at what point does being a Christian maybe give me some answers or some opportunities as an artist that maybe people who aren't Christians wouldn't have. Um, and then how do I wrestle through issues in my art using my faith in a way that's not kind of trite and simple, you know, that not every Christian artist has to paint pictures of Jesus to make a point, or it has to all be Bible images or, um, something along kind of those lines that you can So cheesy art. Yeah, no, not about movies. Uh, Not about in which that. The bad guy gets saved in the end, and yeah, no. Uh, and so, in some way, we've got there. There is the uh, struggle in cinema and in other art forms, and in, in all the arts, I yeah. would say, to to do it as Christians. But what's wrong? Why is it so? What, what's the, the the failure there? I feel like. A lot of it is just a really poor theology. Um, I don't know if this is true of every place in the world, but it seems especially true in America that Protestant Christians, especially those who kind of classify themselves as evangelicals, tend to have kind of a flabby theology um, when it comes to just about anything. Um, They seem pretty content to wear a t-shirt that says, you know, Jesus saved me or whatever and have a fish sticker on the back of their car and they do VBS and things like that. But if you really ask them kind of the nitty gritty questions of um, how does the gospel impact your life, they don't really have good answers for that. It always comes down to conservative politics or um, something they got off a bumper sticker or some platitude you could have heard on a talk show. Um, It's not necessarily scripture. It's not necessarily something that they're really living out. So I feel like when you have a kind of Christianity that's kind of shallow and 
not something you've really deeply kind of thought through, and it's not really based in scripture. It's kind of based more in American tradition than anything. You're going to come up with cheesy kinds of art. You're going to come up with movies where we're really pushing conservative agendas. We're not really talking about the gospel and where everything feels really trite and sentimental and, um, and, or I feel like this is what you see a lot, especially like at Christian bookstores and stuff, which I mean, I've always loved going to Christian bookstores since I was a kid, but it seems like with the art that you see there and with the movies that they sell and things like that, it's a lot of ripping off things that are in the secular world. Um, especially like t-shirts, like Christian t-shirts are usually the most likely place you'll see that where they've taken some other type of logo or slogan or whatever and rewritten it to be more Christian. Um, to which I think is just really sad. The gospel is so full of power and ideas. Um, and just, I mean, it's got Jesus. That should be enough to generate just incredible, incredible kinds of work. The kind of stuff that the world should look at us and go, wow, that was amazing. Where did you come up with that? And you can say, well, I know a guy. <laughs> um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And if it is the case, it's super rare um, and really hard to find. Let me see if I can state it and if you disagree with my restatement. That, that we have in Protestantism, evangelicalism, um, a kind of notion of... A, a kind of disembodied salvation. Yeah. And what art is about is the human condition. Yeah. Um, and so that that uh, the the false cheesiness is in in a sense a reflection of a kind of departure from the realities of the human condition. Yeah. And so there's a kind of flat one-dimensional form of expression in which maybe the art is not the the only thing that suffers, but what suffers along with it is the fully orbed creativity. I mean, aren't all of us artists? Yeah, I would definitely. Um, One of the books that I read when I was doing my honors research when I was in school um, was by Erwin McManus, and it talks about um, how we are all created to create, that we're all made in the image of our creator um, to create and to be in this work of creation with him, um, that part of the call given to Adam and Eve is to take care of the earth, um, to be involved in making and creating and sustaining the world that God's given us as part of that stewardship. Um, and so he makes the claim, and I would tend to agree, that anybody can be creative. Anybody can be a co-creator with Christ. Not everybody can draw. Not everybody can paint. Not everybody is good at editing film. But you can find ways to be artistic and to be creative in everyday life and situations. Um, And I feel like the gospel, the Bible just in general, like the whole kind of story of what God has done, gives us just this incredible, incredible foundation to be able to create whether... You know, my dad's a mechanic um, and watching him sometimes when he fixes cars and as he's taking things apart and diagnosing things, there's an art to it. Um, He's really, really good at what he does because part of his belief is that Christ calls him to do good in everything um, and to try to be as, you know, perfect as he can to give people 
um, excellent service whenever he's fixing a car. And so he bends over backwards to make sure that his diagnosis is correct and that he doesn't lose any of the parts while he's fixing things and that the car leaves fixed. Um, and that's artistic. Like that takes time. It takes talent. It takes a craft that you have to work on. Um, you can see it in people that are in hospitals or nursing. There's an art to caregiving. Um, there's an art to being a mom or a dad and how you take care of children. A lot of my friends are having kids now and watching them come up with creative solutions to sibling fights and toddlers that don't want to potty train and picky eaters and things like that. Um, it's just incredible to watch just the things that they come up with that are kind of from their faith and from their belief in loving another person and training up children um, and providing a loving kind of discipline so that children are prepared for the world that comes up with really creative solutions to problems that, you know, everybody kind of faces. So yeah, I don't think it's necessarily just artists that are creative. Anybody can be creative. And creative here takes on a, a, a added dimension in the created creative in the sense that God is creator, we're made in his image. Yeah. And what we're to be about the fulfillment of that image is necessarily to fulfill our creative purpose as co-creators. Yeah. And in some way, the church doesn't uh, accommodate that, but instead seems to have stifled that. Yeah. There definitely seems to be a sense in which the church, and I think it's natural in some ways, the natural human reaction to anything you don't quite know or understand is to be afraid of it. Um, I think a lot of times the church has been afraid of people that get creative, um, whether it's creative Sunday school teaching or actually creating paintings in the church or doing dramas or skits or whatever. Um, it's risky. You don't know how it's all going to end up. You could be a huge mess. You could get blamed for it. You know, there's a lot of risk in putting trust in someone and their vision of what they think God's kind of showing them to do and what he's given them talents to do. Um, and most churches just opt out and they say, no, we don't do that here. We can't, we can't accommodate that. You need to do it the way we told you to do it. We have these rules. This is how we do it. Um, but it hasn't always been that way. No, as a matter of fact, um, if you kind of look through the history of art, um, from the time that kind of the church was born, artists were always really closely linked with the church. Um, as a matter of fact, with kind of the rise of Christianity, you see a whole kind of shift in how art um, is created. Um, the icons of like the Byzantine Empire that were, you know, all over churches and started actually mostly in the catacombs and things like that, the way they're designed is symbolic of realities that the church believed about doctrines. Like, they have really big eyes because they believe the eyes were the window to the soul. And so looking at these icons was to help you engage kind of in that prayerful meditation. It was trying to remind you that this is not, you're not really looking at a real image per se, you're looking at something that's meant to direct you to something else. They have really elongated bodies to try to like point towards the fact that they're like both heavenly and earthly, that you're kind of a citizen of two kingdoms. Um, they would have um, smaller figures and larger figures to kind of show you who's more important in the story. So like if you ever see one where Christ is in the center, he's always the tallest person and he'll have a halo around him to kind of let you know like he's really holy. <laughs> um 
a lot of that starts to change um, during medieval art into the Renaissance as they kind of rediscover Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy had a lot more to do um, with humanism. And it was kind of this reinvigorated interest in making things look realistic, making them look the way that they were. But at the same time, the church was still very actively involved in the arts. And some of it was maybe because they wanted to be ostentatious, because it was kind of the height of the Catholic Church. And they were building all these massive cathedrals and all of these places um, of worship that were then covered in paintings and gilded work. And just even the conception of how cathedrals are built was very much designed um, to help people coming in find a place to worship. I was reading a book, um, it's called The Bridge to Wonder, um, for a grad school class last semester. It was just absolutely incredible book. But at one point she talks about how um, cathedrals, a lot of cathedrals were built with blue stained glass because when the sun would shine through the blue stained glass, it would create a sense of calm within the sanctuary so that when you walked in, it felt quiet and it felt holy. That just even the littlest tiny nuances of these big, big churches were built to try to bring the person in and help them to experience God. Um, a lot of the paintings in the stained glass were designed to tell the story of the gospel because most people at the time couldn't read. The priests could read, but even if you could read, everything was written in Latin or Greek, so it wasn't necessarily even written in the language you spoke. And so they would create paintings and stained glass work and things of that sort of nature, so that way people who couldn't read could at least understand the story. They would know what was going on. So a lot of that changes, though, as the Reformation happens. Um, there have been a couple of times during kind of Christian history and art history where you've had the church and art fall out. Like the big one was um, the iconoclasts during um, Catholic Byzantine church's rise. There was some debate over whether or not icons were maybe idols and you were breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And so there would be groups of people that would go through and smash things in churches to try to destroy the idols, as it were. And how would you uh, run, what would be the difference between an icon and an idol? The difference between an icon and an idol is kind of the purpose. Uh, an icon is specifically used to, um, you're not praying to it. You're kind of using it as a way to enter into worship. Um, I guess it would be kind of similar to listening to a song when you first get to church before they do the opening prayer. Um, it's a way to kind of like enter into this space. You start to put yourself kind of in these scenes with the saints. You're kind of gathered all together. It becomes a way to kind of meditatively enter into worship instead of being something that you're bowing down to or praying to. Um, that's not really the purpose of an icon. And so, but it's a very carefully nuanced kind of a thing. If you weren't, you know, really very focused and set on that, mm -hmm. it'd be really easy to accidentally slip into potential idolatry, which is why, you know, a lot of people had kind of that argument in very, I guess, I think it was in the dark ages, into medieval ages is when the iconoclast kind of clashes were happening. It kind of happens again right after the Reformation, when you have the Protestant and Catholic churches splitting, Protestants didn't necessarily have a whole lot of uses for art all the time. Um, it felt maybe very Catholic, could be potentially kind of pagan, because um, you're coming out of the Renaissance when there's kind of this reinvigoration of Greek myth and all that sort of thing. There was a lot of debate back and forth about 
what kinds of things could be shown in art, what kinds of things were valuable and valid. And most Protestant churches just decided to kind of get away from that whole thing. And the thing that comes to mind is Michelangelo's depiction on the Sistine Chapel. Uh, Run that down for us a little bit, because he does depict... I mean, uh, graphically there, anthropomorphically, oh, yeah. God. Um, yeah. Michelangelo is just very, very fun. Um, if you ever get a chance to read about his life, he was a very grouchy artist. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he kind of just did whatever he wanted. The Pope that had originally hired him to paint the Sistine Chapel never intended to get what he got. <laughs> he thought, you know, maybe just do some really simple designs or whatever on the ceiling. Just something to cover up what's up there. And Michelangelo decided, no, I'm going to do it my way. If I'm going to do it, it's going to be done my way. Because he wasn't, he didn't think of himself as a painter. He hated to paint, but he did it anyway. And so, yeah, the famous kind of painting, the central painting of the Sistine Chapel is God's creation of Adam, where Adam is very naked on the top of this church ceiling. And God, who you've seen in multiple like panels leading up to that in the act of creation, um, now reaches out to create man. And to give him kind of the spark of life. Um, that's something that, you know, for all of the faults of the Catholic Church kind of in that season, as they were going through all kinds of corruptions and things like that, the one thing they kind of seemed to get was how to depict um, the concept of God's glory, how to depict some of the stories of the Bible in a way that was dynamic and exciting and creative and helped you kind of enter into that space. It took the Protestant Church a very long time to kind of wrestle through what are we going to do kind of with this. Um, And depending on where you were at in the world, you know, if you were in Germany versus England or France or whatever, um, depending on how accepting the particular church you went to was of the concept of art would kind of depend on what you were allowed to kind of paint as a Christian artist. But you definitely see kind of a pulling back of having art in church and, um, like, there's just not kind of that same sense of, like, even the architecture changes. Like, they're not building churches to kind of be these massive, you know, kind of monuments. Instead, everything becomes a little smaller and plainer. In my ignorance, I mean, what I know of is Dutch Reformed yeah. paintings, which, as I understand it, are are uh, uh, just pure realism. Yeah. Which, actually, that's kind of the one interesting exception to kind of Protestant, you know, eschewing of art. Um, One of the things that happened that's really interesting, it was mostly in the Netherlands and kind of in that kind of Northern European area, that when Martin Luther kind of comes and kind of essentially ushers in the the Protestant Reformation, he has kind of within his doctrines of things, this idea of the priesthood of all believers, that, you know, he wanted every plowboy to be able to read the Bible. That anyone could be a Christian. Anyone could be, you know, in charge of their own faith. Be able to read the Bible for themselves. Be able to, you know, pray to God. They didn't need all these trappings. You don't need to buy indulgences to get forgiveness from God. Um, that you can, you know, approach God yourself. One of the things that comes out of that then is the art world suddenly in that kind of northern area has this concept of we can portray everyday people. Nobody has to be special in order to be the subject of a painting. Because up to that point, 
most people that were in paintings, if it wasn't a mythical or a biblical story, it was somebody who was really rich and was probably paying for this painting. Mm. But you see kind of in the northern half of Europe this idea of let's paint everyday people doing everyday things because that's just as valid as the rich guy who wants a portrait of himself. So it is the kind of priesthood of all believers worked out in the artistic realm. Yeah. That every individual is deserving and 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 in, in, in many ways that seems highly commendable that yeah. that, that it is a, a kind of opening up that uh, up to that point you primarily saw Christ and Mary and and the apostles and, yeah. uh, portrayed I, I guess that kind of moving backward but then again with Michelangelo uh, that you know was something like his statue of David, which was his true I mean, sculpt. He really thought of yeah. himself as a sculptor. Yeah. But of course, what t- run down for us? What's happening in that image? Uh, one of the things that's interesting about the statue of David is he does it when he's very young, um, and. It was a big block of marble that had been sitting in a yard somewhere, I think in Florence, and several other people had tried to sculpt something out of it, but it was just too big. The story I've heard, and I'm assuming that all of these are probably apocryphal, (laughs) is that Leonardo da Vinci wanted the same piece of marble. I have heard the same thing, and I don't know if it's the kind of thing you could totally back up with history, But it seems fun because so much of Michelangelo's career was dominated by trying to outdo da Vinci at anything. Because da Vinci was kind of... Da Vinci was older than Michelangelo, was a little more established, and was a really terrific artist. He had really bad follow-through, which is the one thing Michelangelo could always beat him on. Is Michelangelo generally would finish projects if he was excited about them. He wouldn't get as distracted as da Vinci tended to. But yeah, he comes to this gigantic piece of marble and decides to sculpt David out of it. The really interesting thing about the David, though, is that it's very much kind of in this Roman, Greco-Roman kind of tradition of sculpture that has this kind of idealized um, kind of worldview towards it. It's kind of, it comes out of a really, like, kind of platonic view of life. Um, Because all of that, all of the... um, Plato and Aristotle, like all the Greek writers, were kind of rediscovered at the beginning of the Renaissance. And so stuff that people would have read by this point, um, educated people were expected to have read these sorts of things and have discussions about them. And so it was kind of being reinfused into culture at the time. And so his David is very much kind of this idealized male form. It stands very, very, very tall because it's just a very big piece of rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of his attempt to show people. One of the things, I just read a biography about Michelangelo, and I didn't know this before, but sculpture had kind of fallen out of fashion between kind of the Greek and Roman era until about the Renaissance. Nobody really did sculpture. It wasn't kind of in vogue. And then some of the skills were kind of lost. So when Michelangelo came to Rome as a young man, what he would do is he would create sculptures in kind of a Greco-Roman style. And then he would bury them and dig them up and sell them like he had found these as like legitimate sculptures, people would buy them and then figure out that this is not a real Greco-Roman sculpture, that somebody's made this recently. And at first they would be really upset because I just spent all this money for something that's supposed to be an antique and it's not. And then he would come to them being, oh no, I made that. 
And then they would just be so impressed that he would have been able to do it in this style. That that was how he got a lot of commissions. So he was a forger. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's a very, very interesting character. Uh But yeah. The so, story now, tell, and I've kind of, I've kind of dim on the story is that Da Vinci and Michelangelo face each other down, and uh, that uh, Da Vinci says to Michelangelo, "Oh, you're just, uh, 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 you know, you're not a true artist. You just, uh, you just work in, you know, sculpture and stone." And I, 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 and then uh, I, one of them, and I may be confused who does what, but uh, that, uh, and then Michelangelo, you know, says back to Da Vinci, "Oh, you're a mere weakling, and you're not able to to craft a true man." And Da Vinci, or uh, yeah, picks up a, a piece of iron and bends it <laughs> and throws it at the feet of Michelangelo and says, "If I'm a, such a weakling, then you straighten out." that piece of iron and Michelangelo says sir if I would go about straightening out all that you have bent I would there would be no end to it (laughs) that sounds very much like other stories I've heard about the both of them Michelangelo did not have a lot of respect for da Vinci as a person I think he always was really jealous of him as an artist da Vinci was a way better painter than Michelangelo was Um, Michelangelo was definitely a sculptor first and it's probably at least a little bit true. Um, if Da Vinci didn't say something like that to him, somebody would have at some point. Um, it's in the Renaissance you have kind of this cult of the artist, where up to this point artists were considered craftsmen. So, like you have bakers, you have um, wagon wheel makers, you have artists who are craftsmen. They make murals, are frescoes on walls and houses and churches. They do sculpture. They do ironwork. Whatever it might be. But they weren't considered, you know, celebrities of any kind. Mm. It's with the Renaissance, and you have guys like Da Vinci, um, Donatello, Michelangelo, Raphael, all these big names that were starting to get patrons. The Medicis are kind of behind a lot of that, being um, really rich and able to fund a lot of really big, you know, both community art and church art. And the Pope started to get kind of behind that as well. And so you have this kind of shift from the artist as just a simple craftster tradesman to the artist as kind of a celebrity that they're kind of, I don't know, higher status than before that. And so, yeah, sculptor, the sculptors were considered lower on the totem pole than even painters or anybody else because it had so fallen out of fashion and it was just kind of starting to come back around. So, yeah. Let, run down for me if you can. And I, again, I, the, um, that Michelangelo, or rather, Leonardo da Vinci uh, gives us his depiction of the Vitruvian Man. Yeah. Which seems to parallel Michelangelo's David. Yeah. But of course, the well, t- run down for us what you know about that. So one of the things I know da Vinci was attempting to do, he was trying to come up with the concept of a perfect proportion. Um, a lot of what these guys were doing in the Renaissance was almost writing like a guidebook for artists on how to create realistically. Cause up to this point, everything had been very stylized and was more symbolic in nature. And now they're trying to shift the conversation towards it really looks like it really does in real life. And so a lot of Da Vinci's work, because he was almost as much of a scientist as he was an artist was in 
anatomy and physiology and how do you um, create the perfectly proportioned man. And so his Vitruvian man is his attempt to try to um, use both kind of geometry and the human figure to essentially create the perfect man. Kind of in the same way that you would have seen like Greek statues during the classical era have this very kind of perfect proportioned um, kind of idealized view of what humans look like. If you ever look at a bunch of classical Greek Greek sculpture, they all kind of look the same. They all have kind of the same face. They all have kind of the same body shape or whatever. Because it's not really about what the person really looks like. It's about a philosophical ideal. Um, You see kind of the same thing with Michelangelo's David, where he's a perfect man. You know, if Uh he's actually, I think if you actually look at the sculpture, you don't notice it quite so much because you're tiny compared to something that's like 15, 17 17 feet tall. Um, He's actually a little foreshortened. So his legs, I don't think, are technically quite long enough. But, you know, what are you going to do with a block of marble when you're trying to carve it all? So, But as I understand it, he's uh, well endowed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And clearly not. The David, because he's not circumcised, and so it, it is the perfect man, but in some way he's just uh, dubbed him David, maybe to make it, I don't know, to make it. Some of it was David was considered kind of a, almost like a patron saint of the city of Florence. There was kind of a weird... I don't remember all of it. I just kind of remember reading about it kind of in passing that David was kind of like the mascot of the city of Florence because Florence was a very small city compared to a lot of the other city states in Italy at the time. And so they had and they got trampled a lot because they were kind of on the way to places and they were a lot smaller and it was mostly a city of artists. And so they felt always kind of like the underdog coming from behind. So when Michelangelo creates the David, as much as it's his, you know, triumph of look what I can do, it's also kind of become the patron of the city of Florence. So it's almost more of a political statement in some ways than a biblical one. With the Vitruvian man, and I don't, again, I don't know how this develops, but Christ is then depicted, you know, if if people don't know what the Vitruvian man, the guy in the circle. Yeah. With his, he's actually got two sets of legs, but yeah. he's showing a different. And and is there two sets of arms? Yeah, there's two sets of arms because it's essentially like if the human body was in two different positions, he just doesn't go to the trouble of drawing two separate diagrams. It's just one diagram, almost like the body's in motion. And that it becomes then not just the perfect man, but in some way, the the dimension, the perfect dimension. Uh, that is the lens through which to apprehend the cosmos. Am I saying that wrong? That seems about right. <laughs> um, that that uh, in some way the the uh, that what da, uh, da Vinci is doing then is absorbed or taken in, whether it's a you know a valid thing. Yeah. So. Uh, but anyway, go, continue then. So you have, you have, and, and so with the Protestant Reformation, there is a kind of devaluation, not in all places. Yeah. So it's never an equal yeah. thing that Northern Europe and 
that Southern Europe and so that, but, yeah. but in general, you can talk about a kind of uh, uh, artists being disenfranchised from yeah. the church. A lot of it happens when Christianity comes to America. So you have like the Puritans that land um, first, the Pilgrims, and then other Puritans land kind of in New England. Um, other people start to move you know, kind of all through what become the 13 colonies. And so some of it's, I think, just kind of an, you know, kind of the consequence of living on the frontier, you know, when you're fighting for your life against all kinds of wildlife and, you know, Native Americans who don't want you there. There's not really any need for, you know, lots of art and pretty churches and stuff. You're kind of just making it. But as cities kind of raise up and become more prosperous, you have this very puritanical idea of how life is done. It's very simple. It's very regimented. It's very um, focused on a Protestant work ethic. And it's very unfrivolous. Um, if you look at even fashion from the time, it was very, not necessarily plain, but it was very functional. Everything was very pragmatic. Art's not really a necessary thing when you're really just focused on business. And so the churches that were built are... You know, they're pretty, but there's nothing specifically special about them. You don't have kind of the massive stained glass work that you had um, in, you know, Italy and France and places like that. You don't have all these gigantic tapestries or paintings done anymore. You'll see it in some places. Um, some people still will build cathedral-esque churches, but most times it's not in a city that was originally kind of founded by the Puritans. And so let me let me try to bring something in, and you may say it doesn't pertain. And that is that that with the rise of uh, you know something like Dutch Reformed painting, but there's also then the rise of the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Yeah. So that in Max Weber's you know depiction, that as you turn from a Roman Catholic valuation in which you know the church and priests and nuns were all you know and and presumably art yeah then had its own realm of value that there is a kind of flattening out yeah of the economy so that the priesthood of all believers then in, in, in implies that all people and all vocations and as you put it you know business becomes the key because uh, in a Protestant notion of election, in which, or a Calvinistic notion in particular, yeah. but I think it's also there a little bit. In, uh, the the how do you know how who is saved? Well, the elect. How do you know you're elect? Well, you just are. You don't know it because it's no longer by taking partaking of the sacraments. It's no longer because you're uh, you know you're a works based righteousness yeah and so one's salvation becomes a very you know the the uh, uh there's a lack of confirmation and so calvin himself says that well the the sign that god is blessing you uh in your various you know enterprises especially you know that that business is one yeah. of the key the merchants are you know, you're still a priest, and the sign that God is blessing you is that you're earning, uh, you know, large yeah. amounts of capital, and right. you, you have a savings account, <laughs> and that savings account is indicative that you're one of the elect. Yeah. 
which means that there's a whole new valuation system in which the supreme value becomes money. Yeah. To put it crudely and simply, yeah. but realistically. Right. Well, and it's a very strange kind of money being kind of the thing, because if it had been, you know, during the Renaissance when, you know, the church was still just one church, if you had that much money, you would have spent it on fancy clothes and jewels and big houses, and you would have donated money to the arts as a patron, like the Medicis and like most of the popes. Um, it was a way to show off your wealth, to let people know that you have this money. But when you get to, especially um, Puritan-style America, a lot of the you know Calvinist branches of American kind of life were very much about, even if you have money, don't let anybody... Like, it's not to show off. You have it. God has blessed you. But, you know, especially like in very early America, it didn't matter how wealthy you were. You still had to wear kind of plain clothing. You still lived in simple houses. Like, you didn't show off the wealth that you had. You found other ways to show off, probably. But... It wasn't about kind of this ostentatious display of wealth. Art is always going to be kind of considered in that kind of more ostentatious realm because it doesn't seem to fit a really specific need. It's not food. You can't eat it. You know, it's not clean water. You know, it's not going to make clothes for you. Any of those kinds of things. It's not going to meet immediate survival kind of needs. It's definitely something that seems to be kind of the benefit of a settled middle class to, you know, rich type of people. And I guess the, I would, let, let me ask you then, is it that art doesn't, it's not that it doesn't meet a need, it's that under this new system of valuation, the need that it meets is no longer valued. Yeah. That's kind of the interesting thing. A lot of the stuff I've been reading lately has been about why we need art. Um why art is especially needed in the church. But um, one of my favorite artists is uh, Mako Fujimura. He's the, um, I guess, director of the Bream Center at Fuller Seminary. And he's a practicing artist, um, has been for a very, very long time. Um, but he has a quote where he talks about how, and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but it's something along the lines of how um, the soul needs art, kind of in the same way the body needs food. Um, that man cannot live by bread alone. He lives on every word of God. I think kind of in with that is this understanding that it's not just enough to feed a guy and give him a good house to live in and, you know, kind of see to his material needs, that there are needs the soul has, there's needs that culture has, and art's one of the few things that can meet those needs. Um, there's a really, really cool movie out there, and there's a, it's based on a book that's um, a nonfiction book, but it's The Monuments Men, where And these were all real guys. It's actually really cool. If you get the chance to go to St. Louis, one of the guys who was one of the original Monuments men during World War II was from St. Louis. And they have a couple of his paintings in a little hallway on the third floor of the St. Louis Art Museum. But they were specifically sent into Europe to protect and catalog um, all the art that was being really quickly blown up or lost to the Nazis. So they had kind of... A, a kind of dual pronged kind of attack of trying to find art and protect it from the battles that were happening as the D-Day invasion was happening, but then also trying to recover art that had been stolen by the Nazis from the Jews and other people, or just straight out of museums. Cause Hitler was very much convinced that he was going to build 
this gigantic museum um, of all the art. It would be the Fuhrer Museum. And um, the Monuments men were kind of instrumental in saving many, many pieces of art, not only from just being destroyed, but from falling into Nazi hands and being lost kind of to the world in general. And there's a really interesting quote in the movie that they made of the Monuments Men where he talks about, as he's kind of trying to pitch this idea to the United States Army of they need to send in a group of curators and artists who know things about art, who know how to protect art, to kind of go in alongside actual soldiers. Um, and he makes kind of the claim that if we don't save the art, then what's the point in winning the war? That sure, we will have saved, you know, these American ideals of freedom, we will have stopped the fascists, we will have stopped kind of this press of evil and liberated people, but if there's nothing after that to give back to them, what have we really liberated them from? Um, or what have we liberated them to is essentially kind of the thing. Which brings us to the key question. That liberation that we have in Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ, if it is not a freedom that gains expression in a fully orbed humanity, as in the arts, as in, then in some way it's no freedom at all. Yeah. I feel like, um, and I know you and I have had a lot of discussions about this in classes and elsewhere, that kind of the American idea of Christian freedom is an American type of freedom. It's a very patriotic well, I'm free to say whatever I want. I'm free to worship whatever I want. I'm free to do whatever I want. But that's not necessarily the freedom you have in Christ. Because technically, the freedom in Christ means you're a slave to Christ. You're supposed to be obedient to him. You, um, He says a lot of times in um, the book of John and then in First John that you are my disciples if you obey my commands. You know, that's the side of Christianity that we get a little squirmy about because we don't like being told what to do. However, when you are a Christian, when Christ comes to you and you accept him and you're made a part of his kingdom, you're given the opportunity to be fully human again, um, to be the way that God originally created you to be. Maybe it's not all going to be fully realized here and now, but you have the promise of an eternity with God where you will be made whole. You will be made new. And that's where I feel like the church has lost a lot of its power and its witness, and especially it's lost its chance to engage artists and the art world in general because it's traded in what it really means to be saved for something that's kind of shallow and is a little bit too corrupted by bad philosophy, bad politics, really bad theology. On that note, let's... Uh, let's uh, in this part one, <laughs> part one uh, take a short break and, and come back. I want to pursue uh, several other things with you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.